Good morning, Woodland Hills. You guys look spectacular. Yes, marvelous, marvelous. Please do be sending in questions uh, for those two studs up there to answer next week. It's going to be a good time. It's always a real informative time when we have that. And so as I'm going through this message, uh, if questions arise, and they probably will, uh, just text those in or you can write them out and give them at the hub and uh, we'll, we'll address those uh, next week. And, you know, I, I know that we are up here a lot, almost every week, uh, putting out opportunities for folks to give to. Uh, food drives, and now it's with bus tokens. Um, but see, the reason we do that is because that is the kingdom. Uh, it, most Americans have very little idea of how much they spend on extra stuff, on, on convenience stuff, on privileged stuff, uh, unnecessary stuff. Money just sort of trickles out. Uh, Starbucks, Caribou, going to movies, going to McDonald's, a lot of extra stuff. But see, all around us, there are people who don't have basic needs being met. Food, uh, a way to get to the doctor's office. Um, they don't have bus money. And, and the kingdom is all about the folks who have imitating Jesus on the cross in whatever way God leads them to sacrifice so that these folks can get some of these basic needs met. Right? That's the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom begins to the extent that we bleed. That we're, we're willing to let the needs of others pinch us and inconvenience us and we sacrifice uh, for them. So I want to encourage us to always be living in uh, that question. I mean, there are folks in our congregation who don't have basic needs met and that's part of what we want to serve. But for those of us who have Go, go beyond the basic needs thing, and we have extra, to live in the question, does God really want me to spend his money, because it's his, on these extra benefits, um, or does he want me to be sacrificing that to meet the needs of others? And there's not about feeling guilty about getting a Starbucks coffee or going to a movie, but it's about living in the right question. It's not just about what we want. It's not at all about what we want. It's about what our king wants. And he wants, most of all, for us to be imitating Jesus uh, in the sacrificial, sacrificial way that we live. So be open to the Spirit move in your heart and stop by. And this food drive that we're, we're doing is so important. So many people, uh, it's about putting food on, on, on a table for a family. Um, and it's a beautiful opportunity that we have with this uh, food drive ministry that we have here. So uh, be bringing in groceries, man. Be, be, be supporting uh, these folks with the bus. And um, this is how we put the love of God on display. Amen? That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. Hey, uh, I want to give a shout out to Mark, my friend Mark, for what he did last week. Wasn't that an outstanding message? Man, that guy, that guy. It's like one person said to me, man, that, that Texan can preach. That, that Texan can preach, I'll tell you. Uh, you know, if God brings him to mind, pray for him. Um, I had a chance to hang out with him uh, the last weekend, and uh, he sensed as he was here, and I sensed as he was here, uh, our leadership sensed as he was here, that, that he's got some kind of strategic role to play in this revolution that's going on. I talk about this revolution around the globe, uh, that people are catching this vision of a Jesus-looking God and a Jesus-looking kingdom. It doesn't look very much like the church has traditionally looked, it, it, because it looks like Jesus <laughs> carrying the cross. Um, and, and all over the place, people are getting that. And we're asking the question, uh, uh, what role does God want Woodland Hills to play in, in helping form that into an identifiable movement, a kingdom movement? And we sense that this guy, with a particular gift mix that he's got, uh, has, has got a big role to play in that. And um, 
and so we're, we're just looking at a partnership with him in some ways. I, I, you will be hearing from him more, I guarantee you that. Uh, he's just a gem. All right, yes. So keep him in prayer. When I'm back in the pulpit, as we are coming into the dog days of August, and for Minnesotans, August is dog's days, because that means summer's coming to an end. I can't believe it. You know, I mean, we, we got screwed out of a spring, so it feels extra short this year. It's just terrible. I can't believe it's August already. It's ridiculous. But when I'm in the, in the pulpit, I, I'm going to be coming back to the topic of prayer the next three or four times. Um, so two weeks ago, we talked about the urgency of prayer, how God uh, just decided, as he's setting up this world order here, he decided uh, to put aside a reservoir of power that is accessed only by his people, his bride, his, his, his co-workers, agreeing with him that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there's a ton of things that God would like to do but won't do, and in fact, has covenanted that he can't do unless his bride agrees with him. It's a matter of urgency that we're talking to God. Now today I want to talk about what is a really foundational aspect of kingdom prayer, as opposed to religious prayer. Kingdom prayer is always predicated on honesty. And so I want to entitle this message, Honest to God. It's about us just honestly talking to God. And on that note, pray with me here for a moment. Abba Father, I thank you, God, that you have just, in an outlandish way, uh, given us a remarkable degree of authority that we use by talking to you. And um, Father, I pray that as, as this message is going forward, you'll infuse it with your authority and your power, because my words have no authority and no power. But we're asking you to infuse it with your authority and your power to change us, to change us, and to root out of us anything that is not of you and anything that hinders us having an honest relationship with you and with ourselves and with others. Uh, help us, God, to be free of all pretense and all facades. We're so addicted to them. And God, I pray for everybody listening through podcasts or television or any other means. I pray, Lord, that you do the same for them. Build your kingdom. Build your kingdom. Let your will be done in their life as it is in heaven, in this church as it is in heaven, in, in, in this region as it is in heaven. And, and God, make us a people who just understand and utilize the unique kingdom power you've given to us through prayer. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. 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 I uh, say this quite a bit, some frequency up here, because it's true and it's so important that human beings, at the core of our being, we have a desperate need. I think it's the most fundamental need we have. Uh, to believe that we're known, fully known, and completely loved as fully known. To have someone on the inside of our life and knows us on the inside and, and to be loved as being fully known. It's the most fundamental drive, I think, there is in, in the human heart. We feel like our life has meaning and our life has purpose and is full when and to the degree that we feel like we're fully known and loved is fully known. And we have that longing because we're made in the image of the triune God. God is a threefold uh, loving relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're created in His image. And so we long for the kind of relationships with God and with one another that replicate that triune God. We take on that image as we are in these sorts of relationships. Now, the essence of all relationships that are authentic, that, 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 are, that are meeting that need or approaching that need, the essence of it is about communication. Communication. Not just verbal communication, but, but 
any sort of way that we express who we really are to another as they really are, and they express who they really are to us as we really are. Um, communication. That word means to be creating a communion. And that word communion comes from the prefix come, which means with or alongside of, and union. This is what we long for more than anything else. To, to have union with another and with others. Uh, union, a shared union alongside of others. And so, genuine relationship happens when the real me is communicating with the real you, and the real you is communicating with the real me, and it creates a shared union. Your life intersects with my life, and my life intersects with your life. And it creates this third thing, and this is the model of the triune God. This, this third thing is this communion, where we're no longer alone. We are, we are, uh, known and we're loved as we're known. And to love another means you just affirm uh, their inherent worth. You agree with God that they have unsurpassable worth. You know them and you affirm their unsurpassable worth in the process of fully knowing them. And, and this is what we long for in our relationship with God and with one another is to, is to have someone on the inside. To the degree that we don't have that, we, we feel alone, we feel isolated. Um, but all of this is, is predicated on honesty. It means about, we've got to be real. The, 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 the reality of who I am, warts and all, is unveiled. And the reality of who the other is, is unveiled, warts and all. And we have a shared union, warts and all, and yet we affirm the worth of one another, despite the warts and all. That's what a relationship is. We're created to have this with God and with one another. Now the question I want to ask is what prevents that from happening? What keeps that from happening? Um, I think we get to the heart of the problem. You see it illustrated in this short little video I'd like to have us watch. Let's watch this. Who did this mess? Who did this? Cody, did you make this mess? Murphy, did you make this mess? Maggie, did you make this mess? Somebody made it. Who made it? Who made this mess? Poor Maggie. I love it. Who made this mess? The dogs look at Maggie, you know. Can you relate to Maggie? Um, and you can see this dog is in pain. She tries to close her eyes to like make it go away. And then finally tries to slip out the back. It says something profound, I think, about us. Uh, this is what blocks us from having honest relationships. We have a mess. Maybe it's a mess that we made. Maybe it's a mess that another made out of our life, but there's a mess. We are not the way that we are created to be. We sense that there's something wrong, something off, something empty. And there's a shame that goes with that, an embarrassment that goes with that. And it makes us want to hide. It makes us want to run away. You see this uh, right in the first story of the rebellion in, in the Bible with Adam and Eve. As soon as they rebel against God, what do they do? They hide. They hide from God. They hide from one another. They hide behind their excuses. They're, they're blame shifting. It's an impulse that when we feel like we're, there's something wrong with us, we've made a mess of our life or a mess has been done to us, we want to hide. What is that noise? It's this, it's this pocket here. Here, Am I doing something wrong? Probably am. 
Me and technology never get along. How about if I just hold it? Maybe that will do it. All right. Am I on? Am I on? All right. Gosh, I'm so ashamed. I want to hide. Here. Don't notice me. But we can all relate to that. I remember when I was in seventh grade. Got caught shoplifting. I, I, I was in this rock band, and the way that we did our fundraising is we got really good at stealing stuff from stores. That's how we bought our equipment. And uh, I wanted this new symbol, Zildjian symbol, really bad, so I had to go out and steal a bunch of albums. And so I um, go down to Dayton's, and, and we actually had outfits on that we could sneak. You know, this is back in the days when they had those plastic albums and stuff, and we could fit them into our coats. Of course, I'm in seventh grade and I'm not terribly bright, so it's a hot July day and I'm wearing a long coat. What's wrong with this picture? So, and the coat happens to be stiff all the way down after I've got albums, you know, uh, put in it. And I'm, I'm just heading out of Dayton's and I'm thinking I'm just going to make a clean break and right at the door this guy snaps me and I get caught. And I'm down at the police office downtown St. Paul and I, I, in the office of this policeman, he has to, as he tells my stepmother what I've done, he has to pull the phone away from the ear as she's screaming on the other end. <laughs> and I, I know I'm, I'm in a bad place. And I just had, you know, in the, the eternity that it took for them to come down and pick me up uh, out of the office as I'm sitting there with all these other criminals, um, there was just such shame, especially as I thought about my father, having to face my father. And I remember in my mind, I, I did this, like, game. I, I I wanted to hide. I wanted to disappear. I wanted to take an invisibility pill or something. And so what I did is I, in my mind, I, I imaginatively pretended like I was a little guy behind some um, machine, like, like, like a panel of, of, of gadgets, and my body was simply like a, a spaceship or a robot or something. I was controlling. It wasn't me. I'm, I'm hidden back here. It's a bizarre, weird sort of imaginative thing I'm doing, but it... Um, but it illustrates this impulse to hide. I wanted to just disappear. I wish I could just sip, slip, slip through one of the cracks in the floor. Some way to just go away, like Maggie trying to close her eyes. This is what we do. When there's abuse done to us or a mess done to us, we made a mess out of someone else's life. There's a, a part of us, we, we don't want people to see that. And so we hide. Usually we hide behind a, a, a false self. We create a, a facade of ourselves. Yes, uh, Steve, young man, would you like to, let's pray for this sinner coming forward here. Repent. All right. Just as I am without a plea. Okay, put it back in my pocket now. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been healed. Hallelujah. Delivered. The demon has been cast out. Be loosed. So we take the, the pain and we stuff it and we take the wounds, we stuff it, the scars, the shame, the abuse, we stuff it, the sadness, the depression, we stuff it. And, and in its place, we put up a facade of this confident self, this successful self, this religious self, this got-it-together self as our way of hiding. Or we hide behind excuses and blames or, or, or what have you. But it's a facade. And, and see, when we have this facade self, we, we, we do it because... We're convinced, we buy this lie that our worth is diminished by the mess. Uh, we, we buy this lie that if people and if God knew us as we really are in our messiness, well then we wouldn't be loved and we'd be rejected. And so we put up a facade as a way of not getting rejected. But the demonic irony is that the very facade we put up to avoid being rejected, because we, we have a longing to be fully known and to be loved as we're fully known, but the facade we put up guarantees that we'll never be fully known and never feel, never experience complete love being fully known. That facade keeps us isolated because we know that if we put up the facade and people approve of it, 
Well, they're not really approving of us. They're approving of this facade. And so we go on feeling isolated and alone, longing to be fully known and fully loved. Uh, and the facade doesn't do it for us. In fact, as we're living in these facades, this false self, um, all it does is it ensures that the wounds that we have, the mess that we have, will never be healed. Because a wound that is concealed is a wound that can never be healed. And so we, we live our whole life under this woundedness because we won't bring it out of the closet to be healed and to let the light of God's love and the love of, of God's people uh, uh, heal us from that. In fact, when we're in this isolated world behind our facade self, um, we stay in bondage to the devil. To that degree, we're in bondage. He's called the prince of darkness because he needs darkness to operate. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4 where he says that whenever we stuff things, and put on a smile when really there's despair. And we, we, we put it on this together self when really it's just a complete mess. When we do that, he says, we give the devil a foothold. Ephesians 4.26. And we give him room to operate. To the degree that there's hypocrisy, a duplicity between how things appear and how things really are. To that degree, we're staying wounded and we're in bondage. And so the thing that we do as a strategy to not be rejected ends up ensuring that we'll be rejected and continue to be wounded. And then when we live in this false self, hiding the mess of our life, we can't possibly enter into real relationships. When we bring the false self into relationships, what we get is false relationships. Relationships that then are as, as, as pretentious, as false as the selves that we bring into them. And wherever you have false relationships, you're going to have a social system in which how things appear is far more important than how things actually are. And wherever you have a false relationship, a social system that's based on facades, you're going to have a whole lot of unwritten rules that are there to keep that facade in place. Find a dysfunctional family or a dysfunctional church, and you'll find a family or a church where how things appear is more important than how things actually are, and you'll have a whole bunch of unwritten rules to keep that false system in place. And if you break one of those rules, well, you pay consequences for it. Some of you who come from dysfunctional families or dysfunctional churches that are based on facades know what I'm talking about. It's, it, it, they can look healthy precisely because they're stuffing everything that's real. Often, really sick families, sick churches, and other sick social systems can look very good. Because when you've got real relationships, you're going to have mess. Because people have messes. That's part of reality. And so if, if it's authentic, it's going to look very imperfect. Whereas in some churches and some families, it looks too good to be true because it is too good to be true. Because everything that's not good is being stuffed. And, and it's sick. And there's a whole lot of unwritten rules that people got to uh, conform to. They maybe don't even realize that they're conforming to the rules because they're socialized into it. But the rules nonetheless. And this, this permeates the culture, folks, because most of the relationships are, to some degree, at least facade relationships. In the 90s, in academic uh, institutions, the two hot issues were uh, sexual harassment and racial reconciliation. They were hot in the 90s. They maybe still are, but I'm not in that environment anymore, so I don't know. But I was a professor all through the 90s, and so uh, I had to, as was true of all professors, I had to go to a lot of seminars and trainings and conferences on sexual harassment and racial reconciliation. And some of these conferences and seminars were really good and instructive and helpful. But in my experience, at least, for the most part, what they gave us was rules. Rules. Here's what you can say. Here's what you can't say. Here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. Here's what you can notice. Here's what you can't notice. And see, 
Far from creating relationships, empowering us to have genuine, authentic relationships with people of uh, the other gender and, and people of other ethnicities, it had the opposite effect. It tended to send everyone into hiding. Um, you know, people are walking on eggshells around one another because you don't want to say the wrong thing, don't want to do the wrong thing. It's all about adhering to the rules. And that may look good on the surface, but there's nothing real at all. There's no genuine relationship going on here. There's just people trying to avoid getting fined, trying to avoid getting in trouble. You can't be pursuing an authentic relationship if you're obsessed about rules. If you're going to have an authentic relationship, well, then you've, you've got to have the understanding that once you, you may offend somebody and then you work through it. You may say and do the wrong thing, but you work through it out of the relationship, not out of a system that's been imposed on you. You see what I'm talking about? Wherever there's a facade uh, relationship where people have to bring a facade self to it, you're going to have all... How things appear is more important than how things actually are, and you'll have a whole bunch of rules uh, keeping that in place. And it's no different with our relationship with God. It's the same thing. This is why, see, to a large degree, when you have dysfunctional religious systems, it's why prayer goes from just being a matter of talking to God to this kind of religious formal activity that we engage in. It's, a, there's a, it's why prayer sometimes has a sense of unreality to it. And there's all sorts of unwritten rules that go around it. Uh, the right way to pray, the wrong way to pray. And you don't notice them if you're part of the social system. You've been socialized into it. But when outsiders come in, well, they, it just seems weird to them. Now, why is it that when, when religious people pray, they use this kind of weird voice inflection and this weird language? You know, in some social systems, the right way to pray, the respectful way to pray is, is you use a special kind of religious language. O thou heavenly Father who reigneth on high, we beseech thee in thy supplications from thy bounty to pour all thy blessings upon us and blah, 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 blah. And... It's just, it's, it's an odd language. You don't talk that way anywhere else. Um, it's just, it's odd. Or there's special prayer positions that you're supposed to assume or gestures you're supposed to be involved in. How many of you, uh, in your upbringing or at some point got the ACTS acronym on how to pray? The A-C-T-S acronym. Any of you get that? Yeah, it's kind of a evangelical thing. Here's the right way to pray. You start with A, adoration. C, confession. Uh, T, thanksgiving. And S, supplication. And that's the right way to do it right there. Boom, 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 boom. And I wonder what God thinks about that. It would break my heart if my grandkids came to me and they felt they had to go through some acronym to talk to me. Little Aria, two years old, coming up. Okay, first I have to go A. I have to adore Grandpa. Then I have to say this to Grandpa. It's like that formal... See, the, the rules are a surrogate relationship. They're there in place of an authentic relationship. When you've got the authentic relationship, you don't need those kind of rules. And those are great for teaching devices or memory devices if they're there to help the relationship. But far too often and always in dysfunctional systems, they take the place of a genuine relationship. Prayer becomes this kind of formality. Or in some, some places, it gets even, it borders on magic. The rules get so meticulous where I've been in, 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 uh, conferences or, or around folks who held that if you're going to have uh, uh, healing for a certain kind of disease, you got to pray this prayer, you got to address this thing, you got to break the generational sin, you know, and you got to you know just do it just right. And if you don't do it just right, the person won't be healed. There's rules, you see. That's what magic is. It's a bunch of rules that are used to manipulate the spiritual realm because there's no relationship there. 
Or if you're going to cast out this kind of demon, you got to first find out what kind of demon it is and what its ranking is. And, and if it's in the stomach, you got to pray this prayer and bind it this way. But if it's in the head, you got to pray this way and do this prayer and do this hocus pocus or whatever. And if you don't get it right, the person's going to stay in bondage as though God was more interested in particular rules than in the relationship. What I want us to see this morning, folks, is that the kingdom is not at all like that. And kingdom prayer is not at all like that. God, who is the author of all reality, he only trades in one commodity, and that is reality. The kingdom is all about reality. It's all about authenticity. Uh, God wants, above all, an honest relationship with you. And God wants, above all, uh, an authentic communication from you. What God wants is communion, to commune with you to be united with you, and then for us to be united with others in a way that reflects our union with him. But it's all predicated on authenticity. God wants the real you, not the religious you, the holy you, the pious you, the together you, the successful you, uh, you know, the, 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 the you that maybe impresses others. He wants the real you, which means he wants that trite you, the perverted you, the screwed up you, the, the messed up you, the abused you, the doubtful you, the unfaithful you. He wants the real you. He loves you as you are, and he wants to commune with you as you are, which means he wants to communicate with us as we are. And so that means that in the kingdom, there are no rules about prayer save one, and that, save one, and that is, it's gotta be honest. And if it's honest, it sometimes is gonna look messy. Because if we're honest, we'll admit that we are sometimes messy. Kingdom prayers sometimes might look a little bit like this. This is from the movie Apostle, starring Robert Duvall. Hashtag my wife, they stole my church. That's a temple I built for you. And I'm going to yell at you because I'm mad at you. I can't. Take it. Give me a sign or something. Blow this pain out of me. Give it to me tonight, Lord God, Jehovah. If you won't give me back my wife, give me peace. Give it to me, give it to me, give it to me, give me peace. Give me peace. I don't know who's been fooling with me. You are the devil. I don't know. And I won't even bring the human into this. He's just a mutt, so I'm not even going to bring him into it. But I'm confused. I'm mad. I love you, Lord. I love you. But I'm mad at you. I am mad at you. So deliver me tonight, Lord. What should I do? Now tell me. Should I lay hands on myself? What should I do? I know I'm a sinner and I want to know why woman has her, but I'm your servant. Since I was a little boy, you brought me back from the dead. I'm your servant. What should I do? Tell me. I've always called you Jesus. You always called me Sonny. What should I do, Jesus? This is Sonny talking now. All right. This is Sunday talking now. Give me, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me, give it, give it to me. Come on. See, this guy, if you've seen this movie, and it's really a, a great kind of raw movie, but uh, this guy was one jacked up dude. I mean, he was, he was a mess. Uh, he, he was, he, I've, I've known a lot of screwed up preachers, and, and he's close to the top. Um, but he got one thing right. And that's that he had an honest relationship with God. He talked to God the way you talk. Anybody you love, he had an honest relationship, and so when he was ticked off, he was ticked off, and 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 he, and he said it to God like that. And it was to that degree he was manifesting a, a real kingdom approach. It's not that it's virtuous to be mad at God, 
But it is virtuous to be honest with God. And so sometimes if you're mad, well, then be mad. If you're confused, you be confused. If you're, if you're doubting, you say you're doubting. If you don't want to give up your sin, you say you don't want to give up the sin. Whatever is there, be that. Communicate that because that's what's real. That's what's honest. See, this is why you find in the Bible a lot of really screwed up, sunny-like prayers. You ever notice that? You ever, like, read in the Bible and you come across a passage where someone's praying and you think, what on earth is that doing in the Bible? God's Word. Because there's some jacked up prayers in there, guys. For example, I'll give a couple examples here. What? It's Psalms 139. He says, the psalmist says, Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? And abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. <laughs> he assumes that God approves of this hatred. In fact, he's asking God to test his, his, the sincerity of his hatred. Look at my heart, God. See how pure my hatred is. Now, this is the exact opposite of how Jesus taught us to view our enemies and how Jesus taught us to, to pray for our enemies, not against them. We're to love our enemies and pray blessing on them. This is the opposite of this, of, of that. Um, and that tells us that this isn't, this isn't in the Bible because it's, it's meant to be a, a prayer that we're supposed to follow. If we were to follow this prayer, we would have to deny Jesus to do it. This is in the Bible, not as a prescription for how we're to pray. It's there as a testament to how God has always been the God who's revealed on the cross. He's always been the God who's willing to stoop as low as he needs to stoop to meet us exactly where we're at. And he's always been a God who's put a premium on honesty, a a higher priority on honesty than accuracy. You see? It bears witness to the fact that God has always been a stooping, condescending God to, it come, who comes down to our level. And this is why, when reading the Old Testament, we got to be very careful to understand that you know, the Bible's not a cookbook, and you just can't grab verses out of it without any consideration for where they're, they're located. We're to, we're to take our marching orders from Jesus alone and our picture of God from Jesus alone and read everything else in that light. And so as we read this passage, and any passage that contradicts what we learn about God and Jesus, uh, we're to understand that that is there not as a teaching for us to follow, but as a testimony to the, the God who's always been a God who's, who loves honesty more than anything else. You find this all over the place in the Bible. Here's another one. He, uh, he prays, break the teeth about his enemies. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along. How delightful. Like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. The righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. I just want to dance in the blood of your foes. It's like an Al-Qaeda prayer. Oh, we, uh, we, we, we will dance in the blood of their children. And then another one, Psalms 137. This is a famous one. He says, happy or blessed is the one who seizes your infants, referring to Babylon, Israel's enemy, and who dashes them against the rocks. Yuck. In those days, one of the ways the warriors would celebrate their victory is they take the children. They've already slaughtered the adults, and they take the children, and they'd smash their heads against rocks. And just, I, I can't imagine anything, anything more contrary to the character of God revealed in Jesus than that. Uh, you know, can you even imagine for a moment the Jesus who said, let the little children come to me? Can you imagine him ever turning around and for any reason saying to people, hey, you'll be blessed when you dash babies' heads against rocks? I don't think so. Uh, th- this is a diabolical prayer. 
But it's not there as a prescription for that we're to follow. We take our marching orders from Jesus. And this contradicts that. It's there in God's inspired record of his covenant activity. It's there as a testimony to a God who has always loved honesty. Uh, he's, uh, he comes down to whatever level he needs to come down to. And he comes down to a very low level here, right? But that's what he does on the cross, so it shouldn't surprise us. And, and he, the sincerity he loves, and so he incorporates it into his word as a testimony to how, how much he values sincerity. If God can hear a prayer like this, do you think we should ever worry about praying the wrong prayer? You see? The bar is, 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 is pretty low. Um, he loves the honesty. Uh, my, my favorite example of this is Job. You know, Job gets caught in the crossfire of this verbal spiritual warfare in the heavenly realms, this random warfare, and as a result, Satan's unleashed, and Satan uh, kills his family and uh, ruins all his property and afflicts him with boils. And initially, Job is kind of pious. He says, oh, the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we still quote that verse and sometimes sing it as though the book of Job was meant to recommend that as a true theology. When, when in fact, I submit to you that that's part of the wrong theology that the book's meant to refute. Because you find that refrain, Lord gives, Lord takes, it, it happens throughout the book of Job, but as his pain eats away at his spirit, Job gets more and more raw. It's, it's expressed, the same concept is expressed, but in increasingly harsh terms. The point where sometimes Job almost borders on blasphemy. He, he, he gets mad. So he says things like this. God assails, or he says, uh, he destroys. God destroys the blameless and the wicked, just arbitrarily. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. You think that's true theology? Uh-uh. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, when the rich gobble up the lands of the poor, he blinds its judges. If it's not he, then who is it? See, he's assuming, as his friends are assuming, as Satan also assumed in chapter 1, that God is a puppeteer God who pulls all the strings, a manipulative Machiavellian deity. And so he blames God for everything, even as his friends do, even as Satan does. But it's not true theology. Then he says in chapter uh, uh, 16, that God assails me and tears me apart in his anger. He gnashes his teeth at me. He's got this monster picture of God. Uh, my opponents fasten, uh, my opponent fastens on me his piercing eyes. See, he's got this vicious, the Lord gives, the Lord takes, but now it's not so pious sounding. It's vicious. And then he says, who is the Almighty that we should serve him? Nothing. And what will we gain by praying to him? The answer is nothing. You think that's true theology? Not at all. But this is where Job is at. And then he says in 24, the groans of the dying rise from the city and the souls of the wounded cry out for help. But God charges no one with wrongdoing. He's checked out. He doesn't care. There's no justice found in him. And on and on it goes. And then towards the end he says, you turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in a storm. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Only now it doesn't sound so pious. Now Job is raging. He virtually identifies uh, God with Satan. Now, when God shows up, he refutes everybody. But he doesn't do it by saying, hey, you guys, I'm God, I can do whatever I want. How dare you question me? He doesn't say that. 
He spends two chapters talking about how little human beings know about the creation, the complexity of creation. And then he spends another two chapters talking about uh, these two cosmic monsters that all ancient people believed in. It was their way of envisioning Satan, a Leviathan and Behemoth. And what God is saying here is this. You don't know why evil happens the way it does, not because of my character and will are, are, are so, so ambiguous. In fact, God's character and will are the one things we do know. They're revealed on the cross. And God is a very good communicator. When he wants to reveal himself, he can do it, and he does it unambiguously on the cross. We know God's will and God's character. What we don't know is anything about the creation and the complexity of creation and, and, and the demonic forces that afflict creation. And so God is saying, it's about, human beings are, know too little about anything that's going on here to uh, charge Job or to charge me with wrongdoing. In the face of evil, you just got to shut up. But then, see, Job gets it. And, and, and so Job, it says in, in chapter 42, he, he says, I uttered things I did not understand. He gets that he was arrogant and he had no right to blame God for anything. He gets it. And he repents in dust and ashes. He turns from it. He got the point. But what's amazing is in the very next verse, the Lord shows up and says this. He says, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, who was one of Job's friends who were accusing him throughout the book, he says, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now, that truth can't possibly mean that Job spoke accurately because otherwise you have to believe that God mocks the innocent, God doesn't hear prayer, God is unjust, he blinds judges and so on and so on. Uh, you'd have to believe that God is virtually identical to Satan because that's how Job paints him towards the end of his ordeal. But when the Lord says, you didn't speak about me what is true, the word there in Hebrew is kun. And it means to align with, to align with something. And it can mean to align with reality, in which case it would mean accurately. But it can't mean that in this context because Job just repented of his theology. What it can also mean is you align with your heart. Honesty, in other words. And what God is saying here is, he says, I'm angry with you, Eliphaz, and you two friends, because you didn't talk straight with me. You, you didn't speak honestly like, like my Job, my, my servant Job did. Uh, Eliphaz and the two friends, when they spoke, you read about this throughout this book as well, they were speaking out of their fear. They had a self-serving theology, a formulaic theology, where they wanted to feel like they had security because of their righteousness. And whenever you've got that, you're going to be indicting other people, which is exactly what they did to Job. And God is mad at that. He says, you didn't talk honestly with me. You weren't real, but Job was. And that's why Job is called a servant of God. That's why Job vindicates the character of God, uh, which is the point of this whole book. Job stayed honest with God. He said some nasty things, some bad things, some sinful things. It was wrong, so did the psalmist. But God loves honesty, and that's the one thing that Job had going for him. He was honest. He was raw before God. Whatever was real on the inside, it came out. And he said it to God just as it was. Folks, if God loves the kind of praying that Job did and the psalmist did, do you think we ever need to worry about a wrong kind of prayer, about rules, about saying it just right? You know, I'll end with this. This last week, my granddaughter, two-year-old granddaughter, came and brought me this wonderful picture she drew. Um, I'm not sure what it is of. I asked her about it, and she kind of, I think it was sort of retroactive, making stuff up, but it kind of looks like me with curly hair and eyes and a mouth. And yeah. Now, I doubt this will ever make it into the Louvre or any, any great uh, gallery uh, as a masterpiece of human art, but it's a masterpiece to me um, because it comes from her. 
And, and she brought it to me. She offered it to me. And it allows me, as she's explaining it to me, to get a little bit on the inside of this two-year-old's world. It's a masterpiece to me. Now, it would totally ruin it if I were to judge this picture on the basis of what makes art great art. Or if I were to correct her saying, no, no, the eyes aren't right and the mouth isn't right, and no, this is how you, this is the right way to do it. It would ruin it. In fact, if Aria thought that I would respond that way, she'd never bring me the picture, would she? Wherever there are the rules, you're going to have an inhibitor to an authentic relationship. Our prayers, you guys, the gulf between us and God is infinitely greater than the gulf between me and Aria. Uh, and when we pray and, and offer ourselves up to God, it's like this. We're just being, as long as we're real, he loves it. It's honest. And, and, and it may be raw, it may be rank, it may be ugly, it may be messy, but he loves it if it's sincere. So above all, folks, we've got to be a people who... It, it, God reveals his true self to us on Calvary. And in light of doing that, he's saying, will you trust me that anything you could say to me, and I already know it's there. In fact, on Calvary, I already experienced your darkness from the inside. Will you just bring it to me? And trust that our being loved by him doesn't get diminished by what we've offered him in our heart. No, his, his love for us isn't affected by that in the least. And he's the one we can go to and we can know that we are fully known and completely loved as fully known. And it's as we are honest with him and invite him in on the darkness by being real with it, that we give him a chance to start to shine light on that darkness and start to grow us out of that darkness. And that's what transforms us with ever-increasing glory into the image of Jesus Christ. It's about, it's about reality, folks. The one commodity that God trades in. Um, can we be a people who dare, who dare to be that? Even if it's stuff that you know that God doesn't approve of and you don't want to get rid of it. So uh, is this, I'm not the only one who does this, where you know that it's not supposed to be there, so you just sort of ignore it and avoid You pray about a bunch of other things, but you'll just sort of avoid that, that, that topic. Uh, no, no, no. If it's stuff you don't want to get rid of, then just say that. God, here's the sin, and I don't want to get rid of it. And you're not going to make me. <laughs> Fine, whatever's real. But see... And just being honest with where you are right now, that gives God a chance to love you in the midst of where you are right now, which is the very thing that will begin to change your desires and your wants. As long as we keep it hidden, we'll stay in bondage to it. It's got to come out. It's got to come out. I'll be talking about dialoguing with God throughout the day in in, uh, messages to come. But I want to end by giving us this assignment. If you're not one who does this already, can I encourage you, implore you, to carve out a space every day I find that the morning works the best, but whatever works for you, a time every day, even if it's only at the start 10 minutes, where you just are real with God. I, I, I spend the first half hour every day just laying before him and just asking the question, what is real? The real me offered up to the real God. And it is, it is, it's, it, it's the center of everything. I mean, it, this is how we're, we're transformed. Carve out a time where you just commune with God, the real you and the real God, a real conversation. That, folks, is kingdom prayer. I'm going to close uh, with a word to seal this as I do with the prayer teams come forward. And if you're here this morning, whatever need you might have, uh, would you come forward and pray with these folks? We believe in the power of prayer and no reason to take that burden out with you on your own. Remember to stop by at the hub and support this ministry, uh, giving uh, bus tokens to, to uh, homeless folks. Would you stand? 
And uh, Abba Father, I thank you, God, for everyone in this auditorium and listening through podcasts and other means. I pray, Lord God, you now seal it on our heart with the conviction of the Holy Spirit to be a people who are ruthlessly raw and honest before you and with one another. Uh, Thank you, God, for being a God who's bigger than all of our sin, whose light outshines all of our darkness, who loves us as we are and talks to us as we are to transform us into what you know we can be. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of the kingdom people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and be real.